does need to be devoted to just preparing yourself for what's coming. There's two ways to do that. There is the sort of intellectual academic exercise of talking about the way the world is. And then there is the getting out there and learning the way the world is. Both of those things are important. And one of the things I want to do is, in this class, help prepare you for what's coming for two reasons, so that when the time comes and you have a conversation with someone who's truly challenging, your mouth doesn't hit the floor and you spend time trying to pick your mouth up off the floor, but you're ready to go, knowing what kinds of things that are actually out there. Um, before we start that, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, bless our time this morning. Our desire is that we would be faithful in contending for the truth and so make us, Lord, diligent students of truth, but also, Lord, courageous soldiers fit for the fight, that in all things, Lord, we would take all things and subject them to your word so that we might not only know what is right, but also do what is right. Make us such a people, though, morally, um, emotionally, intellectually devoted to uh, your word and your revelation. We pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so a Deacon Johnston was just up here after worship relating to me that he saw a billboard going from South Carolina to North Carolina that said, George, tell me, tell me what it said. Tell us what it said. Great big billboard that said, abortion is legal in North Carolina. So I said, well, now God knows exactly where to send the lightning um, abortion is legal in North Carolina. It's like a babysitter saying, don't leave your kids with me. You never know what's going to happen by the time you get home. Uh, this is the kind of world in which we live um, where it, it's kind of astounding. I think it's harder as you get older. There's a, a book written by a guy named Cormac McCarthy that was also turned into a film called No Country for Old Men. And it's a pretty, all his books are this way, pretty bleak. Um, and they're bleak for a reason, although uh, they're certainly bleak without a perspective of grace uh, and, and mercy. Uh, in this book and in the film, there is a cowboy of sorts who comes upon a drug deal gone bad. And all these guys are laying dead in the desert, in this kind of high plains desert. And he picks up this bag of money. Well, one of the groups that had their representatives there that were killed sends him after the other guy to reclaim all this money. And it's sort of a, a metaphor for the persistence of evil. Uh, it's a pretty, if you've seen the movie, it's a very well-constructed film, but I don't recommend it by any means, um, although it is a, it's a very well-made movie. Um, but during this chase where you have this evil hitman chasing this guy with the money who is continually running from him. Uh, there's an old cop, played by Tommy Lee Jones, I think, going after him. And he cannot believe the wake of carnage that is being left behind them. And at the end of the film, he goes to an old cowboy friend, and he talks about the evil that he's seen and how it wasn't like that when he was younger. And his friend reminds him of another evil act that happened even when that older guy was a kid. And the point, the conclusion that is drawn is um, this country 
There is no country for old men. Uh, As you get older, you begin to look at the things that are happening around you and you say, how did it come to this? Of course, Solomon Ecclesiastes tells us what? There's nothing new under the sun. And so the evils of this empire or what's happening in this empire and what's committed by this great empire uh, is nothing new in relationship, say, to the great atrocities of the empire of Rome or even in Japan. Um, Men do wicked things. As the Bible would say, our hearts are continually inclined, perpetually inclined to evil. And so the question comes to us, how shall we understand and then address the wickedness of men? And where does it come from? Now, whenever we go out in the realm or under the, the title and we put on our apologist hat, we do this all the time. In fact, when you're living day to day, you're taking off and putting on hat, different kinds of hats all the time. You're taking off and putting on your parent hat. You're taking off and putting on your husband or wife hat, your employee hat. Now, you're not ever truly taking off one of those hats completely. Our our lives are not so segmented in that way. Um, One of the great challenges of being a pastor's kid is, is this the pastor talking to me or my dad? And that can be very confusing for the children of parents. You've heard of the PKs and the MKs? You know, they're always like the worst kids in the room because (laughs) they've been frustrated by... Is dad, is he pastor? Is he dad? What's happening here? It's confusing, not only for people who are under authority, but who are those in authority. Whenever we are interacting with people, uh, whenever we are endeavoring to be apologists, we are contending for the truth against unbelief. We find that amongst hardened atheists. We find that amongst even other Christians. I remember being a senior at Landmark Christian School in Fulton County, Fairburn, South Fulton County, Atlanta. That's where I went two years in high school, my junior and senior year, arguing till I was red in the face with these dispensationalist free will Baptists about sin and salvation, grace and sovereign choice. And in that regard, I was being an apologist. I was defending... Um, the Calvinistic interpretive hermeneutic or model of Scripture. And boy, oh boy, did I get into some very heated arguments in the 30 minutes. You don't have much time, so you start off <laughs> real hot. Um, those are some of the most heated arguments I've ever had with anybody about principles of truth. Um, in college, I remember sitting, I took a women's and gender history class, which went exactly like it sounds. Um, I was a history minor, and I took that class because I thought, I want to get in touch with my softer side. And I realized um, women are actually quite vicious, especially when it comes to things like abortion and women's rights and feminism. I remember sitting in class, and our professor, her name is, is, I think she's still living, I would assume, Dr. Andrea Tone, had just published a book on the history of, Dorm, will you get the door, Um, the history of contraception in America which was a fascinating, if not illuminating, book for someone who was 20 and grew up in a very staunchly conservative home. I learned a lot of things. Um, My eyes were widely opened. Uh, One class, she stands before the class and takes a poll. All right, let's talk about the morality of abortion. 
there's probably 25 people in this class. And she says, how many of you think that abortion is okay? And probably 80% of the class raises their hand. How many of you think that it is morally acceptable in the, ra in the case of rape, incest, murder? And the rest of the class raised their hand. And then she said, how many of you think it's just morally wrong? And I raised my hand. Now, that's a weird place to be when you are publicly um, having to, yes, take a stand, right? You're taking a stand when you're one of 25 or 30. And then she said, all right, let's explain your positions. And so one of these guys who thinks he's a white knight for, you know, the feminist cause everywhere, and I'm speaking sarcastically, raised his hand and he said, I think babies are like terrorists. This was right after 9-11. That an unwanted child is a threat to the welfare of the mother, and if he wants to, he can do whatever is, she can do whatever is necessary to eliminate that threat upon her life. And I proceeded to say, Professor Tone, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I cannot believe that someone would actually believe that. That's not what every encounter will feel like when it's happening, but every encounter anticipated is like that. Like the first time, guys, you ask the girl out, and then when you actually do it, I remember in college there was a young lady that I was, you know, curious about, and I decided to ask her out, and I fumbled through it, I thought I did an okay job, and at the end of it, she says, so are you asking me out? <laughs> and I was like, is that not clear? She goes, no. I said, can we just go out? She goes, that's what you should have said in the beginning. I said, okay, I'll do it better next time. It always is bigger in your head, and every time you talk with someone, it's not going to feel like an Aaron Sorkin episode of television where it's perfectly written and it's very pithy. It's going to be like fumbling and bumbling. And so the more preparation that you can do before, the better. And so whenever we are engaging, the question you need to ask yourself and the question that you need to ascertain about them is by what standard, as you see on this first page, are they building their life? And that question, by what standard, is connected to another principle, and that is, it is not whether, but which. So there are going to be a lot of people right now, um, right now in the sort of big Eva Christian sphere, there is this big, scary thing that is being talked about called Christian nationalism. Have you all heard that phrase? Okay. Maybe not everybody, but in the Reformed manosphere, this is the sort of topic of the day. What is Christian nationalism? And there are going to be a lot of people in big evangelicalism that says, well, Christian evangelism is just a code word. It's a dog whistle for fascism, right? Germany got into trouble because they endeavored to be, to wed religion to politics. That's not necessarily the topic of today, uh, but... How then do we interact with um, people who hold the different ideas? In particular, as it relates to this concept of Christian nationalism, there are a huge amount of Christians that say the worst thing that could happen is that we actually have blasphemy laws. Now, my point is we have blasphemy laws already. Every nation has them, and they have them by default. 
So let's say you're a cartoonist living in Saudi Arabia, and you draw a cartoon that humiliates the prophet Muhammad. Guess what happens? You, <laughs> you better go into hiding. Um, those people don't normally live long. Why? Because they have done what? They have broken blasphemy laws. Now let's say you are a comedian in this country and you make fun of a particular intersectional people group based upon some, let's say, commitment to sexual immorality. Guess what happens? You get canceled or you get fired. Those are called blasphemy laws. There are certain names of certain persons or groups that if you blaspheme against them, your life is made more difficult. There is but one name in heaven on earth whom we are not to blaspheme. And in the third commandment, we are not to take the Lord, the name of our Lord God in vain. We are not to make images of him. We are not to access his name by anything other than his word. That standard is grounded upon what? The Christian blasphemy law is built upon what standard? Where? Scripture. Yeah, the Ten Commandments and other places in Scripture. Um, there are secular blasphemy laws. It is because it is not whether, but which. Now, in order to understand how we get there, there are some things that I want us to look at. The first is that within every worldview, there is a distinctive cosmology, and I'll define that word, and a distinctive eschatology, and I would add to that an epistemology that grows from that and a morality that grows from that. Now, cosmology and the word cosmetology are not unrelated. It simply means to set in order. How were things set in order? Cosmology relates to the beginning of all things. Eschatology relates to the end of all things. And how we begin is related to how we end. And how we act in the meantime is related to both. And what we know is also related to how we started. So let's look at the first heading there on page two. Biblical cosmology and epistemology. So epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. What is the source and foundation of our truth? Now, if I ask you, what is a biblical epistemology? If epistemology is the study of knowledge and truth is the highest expression of all knowledge, what is the foundation for biblical knowledge, biblical epistemology? What is it? Anybody? You don't have to raise your hands. God's Word. Are, is there another standard in addition to God's Word? Maybe kind of a trick question. Creation. The book of creation, the book of Scripture. Now, in order to rightly understand that, we do need to rightly understand this. The other day, I was asking my wife a question. Um, the... An object that stays at rest tends to stays at rest until an outside object acts. Is that one of the laws of energy? Is it a law? Is it one of the laws of physics? Okay. And then there's laws of thermodynamics. Um, those are not things that we ascertain from Scripture, right? Um, but they are true because God is the creator. 
in order for the laws of logic and the laws of nature to persist, not only does there need to be a creator God, but there actually has to be a providentially sovereign God. Gravity acts the way it does every time because God upholds the order of the universe. So there is a great relationship, there is a great connection then between biblical cosmology and biblical epistemology. Now, predominantly, as it relates to biblical cosmology, there are some varieties of views about how we should interpret Genesis 1 and 2. We need to know what those are. Um, There are unorthodox Christian views that are even popular today, views like theistic evolution. But at its heart, as confessional Christians, and I don't have my, I think my catechism confession's up there, God made everything that is seen and unseen in the space of six days and all very good. That's what our confession teaches. Our origin is in the mind and actions and speech of God. God made us. Imago Dei. So that you and I bear the image of God. That God made us with uh, dominion over the creatures and knowledge, righteousness, holiness. And he called us to do certain things. And when God made Adam, he called him to be a scientist. He called him to name and to order in a fashion after God's ordering. So when God made everything in the space of six days and all very good, he placed man into the garden and he said to Adam, Adam, I want you to go out into the world, into that wild but good place, and I want you to take dominion of it. One of the points that Abraham Kuyper makes in his book, Wisdom and Wonder, which If you've not read that book, it's a great holiday reading book, Wisdom and Wonder. And he talks about science and the arts. Science, as a discipline, predates the church. I thought that was a fascinating point. Christians, then, are called to be faithful, biblical orderers of creation. So when Darwin comes along and he says... This and that species came about through a series of um, epochs of mutation, epochs of mutation. Was Darwin rightly ordering or disordering creation? By doing what? Yeah, misnaming. That's what we do. We name things as they are in accordance with God's word, with nature. This is what Paul means in Romans 1 when he talks about those who are committing sexual immorality, same-sex sexual immorality, that they are disordering, they have sinned against nature. How then do we get to a point where we call things what they are not in such an obvious fashion? Well, there is a biblical order. Now, we don't have to call a giraffe a giraffe. But whatever it's called, we need to agree that that's what it's called. Based upon, have you ever learned the Latin names of animals? They're always related to some kind of feature that is distinguishable. They're not fiat names. You know what fiat money is? Fiat money is a coupon, is a piece of paper 
that is not built upon some sort of natural order, but merely social construct and agreement. And so when we lost the gold standard, what happened? Well, then we lost the standard by which that dollar can be named. This is why they say buy gold, buy silver, buy land. Because try as you might, there's only so much of it, and everyone has the same kind of access to it. In the same way, there is a moral, epistemological grounding that is built upon a God who has revealed himself first in creation and then in works of providence. You and I can know things because God has made it possible to know them. You're not crazy. (laughs) And the source and foundation for all biblical knowledge is creation and providence. This is the foundation for our epistemology. So let's then turn to page three. There is also a place to which we are going. Does that put it there? All things flow to the New Jerusalem. Or it is out of the New Jerusalem that all good flows. That in a very real sense, if you look at every worldview, you are coming home to the place from which you came. So when God made man and put him in the garden, he dwelt with man in peace and in rich fellowship, and he walked with him in the day. And then when Adam's wife was made out of his side, Adam and his wife, man, Ish, and Isha walked together. How long they lived there in the garden, I don't know. I don't think it was a very long time. I don't think Satan, I think Satan was ready and willing to destroy that peaceful environment. So Satan interrupts that. He leads the woman astray. Adam does not stick up for his wife, does not proclaim the commands of God. Here Adam, a priest and a preacher, just like Noah, was called to shout at the devil. He failed to do so. He was called to stand against the deteriorating force of wickedness. And instead of building a temple and improving upon that glorious earthly dwelling place of God with man, he allowed evil to creep in, just like the priests in the Old Testament. Strange fire. He believed it. So did his wife. And because of that, they fell. And since then... The longing of man isn't to reject God as much as it is to enter back into fellowship with God on his or her terms, to get back into the garden, but not on God's terms. And so every act of human idolatry is at its heart religious in nature. It is all religious in nature because it is the ordering of man's affairs unto an eternal end. Now, in terms of biblical eschatology, we've looked at cosmology. Throw out some ideas about what biblical eschatology looks like without maybe getting into the particulars of the millennial positions. Anybody? Inevitable. It's inevitable. It's coming. What else? For the Christian, good, bad, indifferent, it's good. 
Christ wins. What do we confess in the Nicene Creed? Huh? Just you're right. Uh, that one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. We sing in amazing grace, you know, when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Eternity is here. Christ is coming. When Christ come, he will, comes, he will destroy that last enemy of the church that is death. An enemy that we cannot defeat? Can't. Only Christ can do that. Uh, that Christ will... What planet? I don't know. There's a lot of debate as to where. But we know that one day we will dwell with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will continue to live with him. And there will be worship. There will be work. We will invent. We'll do all these things, but without sin. And so where we're going is not unrelated to where we've come from because God's plans and purposes are for the redemption of his beloved bride. And one day, like Adam and his wife, we will be without sin. Now, we say, as Thomas Boston said in The Fourfold State of Man, that we will not be able to sin. We will only be able to do what is good. Unlike Adam and his wife, they could sin, and they did sin. But Christ will remove root and branch every vestige of sinfulness and we will be perfect in righteousness. Will we eat meat? You know, that's always the question for people who like steak. I don't know. I think so. I don't know how. But boy, is it good. And don't take steak. But that's not as important as what? That we will see Christ and we will dwell with the Godhead in the person physically of Jesus Christ, the physical person, Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered that, how we would dwell with the Father and the Spirit who do not have bodies? We are embodied. Christ is embodied. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will tabernacle with the Trinity in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, man. It's going to be a good day, right? It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a lot of days. That eschatology gives our lives purpose and meaning. It gives us something to look forward to. And that's what creates and gives weight to biblical ethics. If you've never read The Weight of Glory, I would encourage you to read the whole book. But if you're not one of those people that can read a whole book, read the whole first chapter. Because the whole first chapter is the one that everybody quotes anyway. And in that chapter... Um, the first chapter of the weight of glory. This is where Lewis, this is Lewis at his finest, C.S. Lewis, that is. And he talks about this idea that you and I are not mere mortals. We have a beginning, but we do not have an end. That as soon as God makes a soul, or as soon as a person is conceived, body and soul, and there's a difference of opinion as to whether or not God creates the soul and places it in a fetus or in a even pre-fetal state, or if that soul is the part of conception, the fact of the matter is, once that soul becomes existence, it never falls out of existence. It is always and immortal in its existence. 
And so he says, everyone you've ever met is not mortal. They are immortal. And we ought to treat each other as such. And he doesn't say that should make, make us sorrowful like Will. You know, the um, frozen by possibility. Well, if they're immortal, I, should I ask her out? Because, no, he goes, we need to interact with one another. We need to dance. We need to sing. We need to um, feast and do all, cry and do all of this stuff. But as those who take each other very, very seriously. I can't remember the quote, and I don't want to try to paraphrase Lewis because... Whew, that would do him injustice. Yes. Absolutely. You said in your sermon, mercy and judgment. Yeah. We meet people, and when I first read that, you and I talked about it at length, it is a great mystery that we are meeting somebody who is eternal. But potential is a very high potential. That person is not So we are to treat them, treat them with kid gloves, but also remember, hey, they, it, it is appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. This person who is eternal is going to face judgment. Whatever God created in creation and providence, it's incumbent upon me to seek their good, yeah. even if I don't like it. Yeah. Right? Well, so that two-sided yeah. thing, they're eternal. They're potentially unregenerate. Yeah. Right? So any person you've got to yeah. contact with, you can look at it and think, you're going to face judgment, right? And potentially you are not prepared to face judgment. Yeah. So it, it creates a disposition on our part in which we are, for lack of a better term, the aggressor. You, you are a, an operator in God's army on this earth. God has put me right in front of you, and I can take your life. Not, mm-hmm. not, not that type of thing. I know what you mean. They be sealed. But I'm pres- I have the keys to the kingdom in Christ and his blood. I can save you, but I can't I can save Christ can save But I'm here because he has, in the providence of God, put me right in front of you. Right? So there is this, for lack of a better term, opportunity. But they are eternal. And I love that idea that Lewis talks about. Mm-hmm. This is not somebody that you're not going to see again or potentially interface with for the rest of your life, for yeah. the rest of your eternity. Yeah. So the foundation for our ethics is biblical. And I'm going to get back to that in just a second, what you said. So when we ask the question, what is right and what is wrong? The first source that we use to answer that question is, what does God's word say about it? And what does rightly, a rightly ordered perspective about nature say about that? That is how ethics and cosmology and eschatology are related. And not only that, but God has promised that he will reward our good works. They are not the foundation for our justification. They are the fruit of our sanctification And God actually uses them to build his kingdom. And so the Christian is a joyful, satisfied, built-upon-the-rock kind of, to use your parlance, operator. He is someone who is operating in in the realm of creation with the idea that 
He has purpose and meaning. Now, that is how Adam was to go out past the walls of the garden, pack his lunch, get out there, and order creation. In the same fashion, you and I are called to go out into the world and rightly order things, except the world is no longer merely wild. It is unhinged and broken by the fall. And so we find not only animals that need to be named that don't want to eat us, but animals that need to be named that want to eat us, and people who hate the name of Christ and want to kill us. But the mission of creation mandate, dominion, is not unlike the Great Commission because they are both they are both missions of ordering what is disordered, either by nature or by the fall. And so Spencer was saying, when we go to someone, we need to assess in what ways are they disordered. And their disorders are linked to their cosmology and their eschatology. So, those perversions are normally grouped and centered around the promises of God for power, wealth, and pleasure. So, within biblical cosmology and eschatology, how is the promise of power realized? What does power look like in the church? And how is it manifested? Have you thought about that? Does the church seek power? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That the power of righteousness might be manifested unto the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the saints. We want the power of Christ to be made manifest. Pleasure. How is pleasure manifest? Our, you know, there's the talk of the Christian hedonists. That's a whole John Piper thing. Not a great concept per se, but we're not Stoics. I mean, when I see, right, when the psalmist says, I, I look at what your finger has made. And I ask, what is man that you are mindful of him? There is a pleasure that God wants us to take in the gifts that he has given us, but always with the idea that we are creatures, not the creator, that we're not to worship creation, but the creator. And so when it comes to music, when it comes to the arts, when it comes to film and writing and culinary arts, which is my favorite of the, all the arts, is culinary arts. <laughs> it's, oh, what a gift. God didn't have to make taste buds or color, but he did. Or the pleasure that you derive in your spouse versus a series and string of other relationships. What about wealth? God is the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. The church should not be afraid of wealth. They should be afraid of idolatry. They should fear. They should run from idolatry. 
But who would you rather have controlling the levers of power in this world, the ungodly or the godly? Now, the godly should always do it with fear and trembling. In fact, when the kings of Israel went to power, it was required that every one of those kings write a commentary on the Pentateuch. Why? So that they could apply the word of God. And every year they were required to read through the law. Why? Because they served at the behest of the heavenly king. Just like we have now in Washington, right? That's what we have. People who serve at the behest of their heavenly king. No. Who? Hollywood or whatever. Someone other than, and something other than the king of heaven and earth. What the ungodly are trying to do is erase God from the origin, and so erase him from the end, and therefore make it possible to erase him from the middle. An ethic that is uninformed by a cosmology and eschatology at which Christ, the Lamb of God, is erased. And so when we go to those people, and they don't, they're not all secularists, right? For the Islamist, who stands at the center? Who is their origin? For the Mohammedan, for the Muslim? Allah. And what kind of God is Allah? He is what we would call a consummate bachelor. He is not a God who dwells in eternal fellowship. And he acts just like a consummate bachelor. Ladies, you know I'm talking about the guy who has no room for you, only for himself. That's Allah. I think Allah He's fickle. I think Allah is the kind of God man. He is the God that a pedophile creates, yeah. Muhammad, who excuses certain sins and condemns others. He is fickle by nature, just like the God of the Jews is not Christ. He is not a God who sent his son into the world to show mercy to sinners. Or name the religion, the Buddha, Hindi, or all these other gods and goddesses and plurality. Look at the way men invent gods. Look at the way the Romans and the Greeks. The gods possessed qualities, and some of them were good. And some of those qualities our God possesses because man cannot escape the reality and the gravity of there is a God who exists. But the demigods of Greece and Rome. And so when Paul writes to the Roman Christians in Romans 9, and he says the decree of election is real, get over it, that's kind of how he says it. Because if you are a Roman Gentile or Jew who is influenced by Roman theology, you had a series of gods who were more powerful than men, but just as fallen. And though they controlled everything, humans could actually bring charges against those gods and their godhood could be stripped from them. And so when Paul is writing to the Roman church, he's saying... As it relates to justice and injustice with God, you don't get to talk to him that way. He is the potter and you are the clay. You need to zip your lid. It's the kind of correction that Job received when God said to Job, who are you to question me? Now, God is not fickle. God is good. 
and we can trust him and believe him because all that he has done is good. Some providence are hard, some are easy, but all of them are good. That is a God that the world hates because you cannot bring him to the stand and begin to ask him questions. And so what will happen is you begin to enter into conversation with the world. These are the questions they're going to ask or things they're going to say. Well, how can a good God let evil things happen? Now, you can take the bait. And the bait will be answering their question on their terms and in their language or apologizing or saying, like many Christians, so-called Christians say, well, bad things are not the part of God. That's what Satan does. I mean, you've heard, have you heard other Christians say this? I've heard teachers say this. Now, you know, these are probably loose evangelical Bible study type contexts. I've never heard a Reformed pastor say anything like this. But what I have seen is Reformed pastors say, you know, maybe theistic evolution actually is proper. There's a very popular PCA pastor in New York City who holds to the idea of theistic evolution. Because we have to take science seriously, right? The science. (laughs) And so this is the world in which we live. There is a desire to erase your true identity. And this is what rebellion at home looks like. I remember as I got older and I went to college, I thought, I'm just not going to do things like my dad does them. (laughs) (sighs) But you still have to look in the mirror and see his nose or ears. Or when you hear yourself talking, you literally hear his voice. Or you have his grandson and he looks and acts just like both of you. I'm not speaking from personal experience at all. (laughs) And you realize there is an inescapable reality to the patriarchy. And I don't mean patriarchy versus egalitarianism. I mean it is impossible to escape that God is our father. And so this this persistent erasure of where we came from and the subsequent where we are going takes an enormous amount of energy. Now, parents... You've caught your kid in a lie. This has happened to me as the one who has lied, and it has happened to me as the one being lied to. And if there is anything that is true about a kid that is trying to save their hide, they can get very elaborate in their lies. But the deeper they go down that that lying story the more absurd their lies have to be every time they are confronted by their lies. And so what has happened in a society like ours is that in order to escape an inescapable principle that we are made by God and made for God and that he is angry with us because we have sinned against him, is we will go so far as to say men can give birth. It's absurd. And 50 years ago, even the diehard secularists would say, that's absurd, you lunatics. How could you say, you need, to, you need help. 
But now we've come to the point, just a few decades later, where the diehard secularists, in order to perpetuate the lie, go, okay, maybe it's possible. Um, So on this latest trip that I went on with my brother-in-law, we were in the car for 19 hours the first day. Um, And he said, hey, let's listen to this Matt Walsh, What is a Woman documentary. I could get through about 20 minutes of it. I said, I can't take it. I can't take the absurdity of the answers to the simple questions that he was posing. What is a woman? And one college professor said, I am this close to ending this interview because he used words like truth. (laughs) Now, my encouragement will be to you, um, if you ever encounter one of those people, just Kick the dust off your shoes if it doesn't work out. Those, th- th- there is a group of people that seem to be so lost that um, it's almost as if they are given over fully. I'm not saying don't try it. Just know that you may go home and put your hand through the sheetrock because you're going to be so frustrated by it. How do you get there? How do you get to that point? And it's because... In order to build a life of rebellion against a system of order that you know is true requires a a series of, shall we say, remodels to your house of cards that don't strengthen it but actually further weaken it. Have you ever seen those houses? You can tell what the original thing was, right? Maybe it was built in the 1920s. But then you can tell the guy did all the work himself, and it wasn't really up to code. And he just added on all of these wings. That's where we are. And the original foundation was crooked. And all it led to was a series of building on to that house that is built upon the sand. And at the end of the day, what you're left with is a series of philosophical and religious commitments that are utterly disconnected from Biblical reality. And what you need to do and understand is how they got there. So there have been a handful of times in our li- my life when I've gone into my daughter's room, Eleanor Louise Fowler. She is very good at making a mess. It is a perfect metaphor for the fall. But there comes a point where that mess is so bad that the only person in the house that knows how to bring order is my wife. And it takes her forever. And not only that, but when my wife orders something, it isn't like me where I put it in a box and put the lid on it. It's, it's ordered. <laughs> it's, everything has these little compartments. And unless it's rightly ordered... It's not really clean. We have reached a point where unless we know well God's word and how to apply it, we will not be up to the task of helping people whose rooms, whose lives are so chaotic and destroyed by the fall that we will go in and go, I have no idea how to help you. I have no idea. (laughs) And in fact, this is really what God calls Christians to when it comes to Christian discipleship. 
is to pick up every little piece and put it where he goes. And apologetics is part of that. It is the right ordering of men's lives according to the word of God. But if you don't know how they got there, you don't know how to put it back. Does that make sense? And I'm I'm really focusing on secularism because that is the sort of religion du jour right now in this country. That's the thing people boast about. It's what all the Instagram influencers are. They're spiritual, but they're not religious, (laughs) which is just another word for I can do whatever I want, and I couch it in religious terms. And so we need to understand cosmology and eschatology to better understand why they say something is good when it is not good. Yes? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And I, that helps me, and we'll be done after this. Um, at the end of the day, people will be one when their hearts are compelled by something that they believe to be good. And this is an emotional process, right? It's one thing to know, all right, I've got to eat better or live better. I've got to honor my spouse. I've got to be kinder to my children. But the commitment to a persistent life of righteousness is really only sought out continually when we see the goodness and the virtue and the benefit of it. The reason why we begin to address, and this is what we'll talk about next week, ethics is because we're trying to get people to see what is good for them and for their neighbor. And that requires and involves emotion. And so we can talk about that next week. Any other things? I know y'all. I don't want to steal family time, hospitality time. All right, let's pray. Lord, may we engage faithfully the world that is around us. May we understand them and the word so that we can bring the both together and address those things that are out of alignment with your word, and then contend for your truth in a passionate plea for salvation and eternal righteousness. We pray this in your name.